0: It is time once again for another episode of Inner Experience, the podcast where we talk about the occult, magic, art, mystical experiences, and experiences of the divine, all as they relate to philosophy and critical theory, at least in the way that those terms are commonly understood. Acid Horizon, our sibling podcast, is currently conducting a reading group this year. We are reading Deleuze and Guattari's A Thousand Plateaus. Next week, we have our second group of sessions, Seminar 2, where we are reading the treatise on nomadology in A Thousand Plateaus. You can join us in the discussion just by signing up on Patreon for as little as $1. We invite you to hop in with a friendly group of folks as we go over the big concepts and relish some of the finer details of this text. Today, Adam is running the show, but Will and I are in the discussion with our new friend Eden from the podcast Death Sentence. So let's get right to it.
1: Humanity is so infinitely small, in all these stars determinate, maker and molder of them all, humanity is so infinitely great. This is your inner experience, and today we're joined by Eden, editor-in-chief over at Heavy Blog is Heavy, and co-host of the Death Sentence podcast. We're going to be discussing the theory, phenomenology, and fictional contours of magic realism, its usage as a fertile ground for depicting the class struggle over ownership of the means of production, and as a tool for expanding the political imagination, especially in our times of profound economic and cultural austerity. So for this, we read Eden's essay on the radical escapism of magic realism, or how to become a god in late capitalism. We're going to look at paradigmatic cases of magical realist fiction as a kind of framework to explore everything from knowledge production to technology and the role of ideology in maintaining cultural hegemony. Eden, welcome to your inner experience. Thank you, guys. Thanks for having me. Okay. So just to get us started off, so could we just uh, get into the basics of what is magical realism? Is it simply a genre convention or is it something fundamentally in excess of the actual medium of fiction in which we tend to think about it? You know, is it a, not only a a genre constraint, but also a kind of narrative imagination, a mode of the imagination in terms of how one relates to the world? Mm -hmm. Is it also a kind of uh, phenomenology, so to speak?
2: Yeah, that's an interesting question. I think a few years ago I attended the Republica conference in Berlin which is a digital cultural conference. And I spoke about some of this stuff, science fiction and its use in, in radical and critical thought. And someone asked me from the audience what I thought about um, genres and the excessive proliferation of genres, not just in science fiction, but also in metal, right? Death metal and black and grind and progressive and sludge. And I can keep going like literally for hours and all these subgenres and stuff like that. And I said that on one hand, genres are useful definitions because they give us tools to, you know, slice and dice large bodies of work and how to relate to them, what to expect from them and so on. But on the other hand, people tend to take them too seriously, right? And and to assign them some sort of value, which is not only not present in, in... I mean, I know that Kant might be like a a dirty philosopher to bring up uh, in Deleuzean circles, but the thing in itself, right? There's no genre in itself. It doesn't exist. It's all a relational thing. Um, And and what's more, genres are very good for the market, right? The The logic of the market likes genres because it likes to assign prices and categories and so on. So I suggested that we should view genres like modifiers, almost like in a role-playing game. Like if you have a weapon and it has the flaming modifier, then it's on fire, right? Um, But you can mix and match these modifiers to create all of these combos, which are um, porous, either less well-defined. All of which, this lengthy intro roundabout way to say that magic realism can be viewed as a genre. And if you asked an art critic... Right. They will tell you that magic realism is a style of painting that took place in the early 20th century, exemplified by the early works of Picasso and Dali and so on. And if you asked a literary critic, they would tell you that magic realism had its renaissance, particularly in South America, Borges, Marquez, etc. But I'm here to tell you that magic realism or to offer to you that magic realism is a modifier. There can be magic realist music, magic realist literature, magic realist art, magic realist whatever you want. Um, it is it is a modifier with this like porous and and un, not well defined um, you know aesthetic mode of thought and, and approach. Um, but of course, we're all good postmodernists um, on, on this cast, so so we know and believe and think at least I do that the relationship between aesthetic knowledge creation and reality is you know liquid right so what does it mean for something to just look magic realist as opposed to something to be magic realist right it's it's one and the same thing
1: yeah I mean I'm very tempted to say because the last episode we did was on a, a wrap-up of our rhizomatic reading series and it is it is a rhizomatic <laughs> genre is more rhizomatic than our you know it's a the genre is being sentenced to, you know, it's like you're, when you do black metal, you're sentenced to black metal. You have to follow these conventions.
2: Yeah. So uh, it, it, whenever someone says rhizomatic, it, it, it reminds me during my BA, my BA is in philosophy and, and history. And during my, my BA, I had this great um, teaching assistant, right? They can say things that the professors can't, right? They can be more, um, at least at least where I, where I got my BA, they can be more rowdy and out there and stuff like that. So he said that... Um, Rizomes are like a hammer. Once you have them, everything starts to look like a decentralized network. <laughs> like once you start thinking with Rizomes, you just look around and, oh, everything's a Rizome. Oh my God, my house is, a, is Rizomatic. My brain is, everything is Rizomatic. Um And then he said, I'm not saying it's wrong. But, you know, it, it, yeah. it, I, I, I really um, like that you said, tempted, right? It's like a temptation mm. to just every single object you see, you're like, oh, that that's a Rizzo, if you think about it, right? Um,
1: is an expansion of the
2: imagination
1: as brought into, especially the way you depict it in this essay in terms of the, in everyday life. I mean, one of the best ways of sort of showing how you affirm magic's realism is by talking about its distinction between magic realism and uh, so-called high magic, particularly yeah. in fiction settings. one wonder if you could go into that distinction a little bit more.
2: Sure, so I think when I wrote the essay, first of all, talk, it, it took me a long time to write it. I first had the idea to talk about, you know, more like a Marxist analysis of of magic realism. Mm. And I kind of I had four paragraphs in a Google doc, which I got my friend to comment on. Um, and then two years went by I revisited it and and knocked it out in a few weeks. But in the interim, I had done a lot of thinking on Magic Realist through the media that I consumed. So I played games like Dishonored and uh, role-playing games like Spire, if you're familiar. And I I got to, unfortunately for me, because I don't like it, I got to play like a few sessions of D&D. And um, then I saw On Becoming a God in, in Central Florida, which is a TV show starring Kirsten Dunst. And it's a fantastic show, one season, I think 10 episodes, that, that tells the story of uh, a multi-level marketing scheme, right? An MLM basically destroying the lives of already poor people in Central Florida. And, and it's not based on a true story, but it might as well be, right? Because that's like happens all the time in the U.S. and, and outside of the U.S. Um, and that show did this really interesting thing. No spoilers. But in the middle of it, it takes this magical realist bent all of a sudden. Well, the nonsense that this pseudo cult leader is selling his followers, these MLM marks, right? Suddenly the show asks you, wait, is he for real? Could it be that he's for real? Like it's not a scam? Like he actually has some sort of like charismatic magic that he's working on these people. Suddenly everything, you know, collapsed, collapsed in my head. And I was like, wow, I can take this and make it the centerpiece of my essay and write the whole thing around it. And it really orders my my thoughts. What I hadn't yet done, which I've I've been doing in the next few weeks in preparation for the next death sentence episode, is go back to Jack Vance. So Jack Vance, for those who are unaware, is one of the greatest authors of the golden age of science fiction, also a terrible person, terrible, terrible individual, um, used rape as a plot point, used racism as a plot point, just awful individual. But the literature that he wrote is f- phenomenal. And he basically invented, you know, magic systems as we're used to thinking about them. So wizards with spell slots in the day, that's Jack Vance. Spell books containing specific spells, that's Jack Vance. Um, mm. Fireball. He is the first person to use the spell fireball as a spell. Ancient wizards, all that stuff. He invented all of that. What's called Vancean fantasy or and magic which later became D&D. D&D has a Vancian magic system. D&D stripped everything that's interesting about Vance like his works were much weirder than D&D but they they, they took the magic. So high fantasy, high magic, Vancian magic is it's underlying supposition is an epistemological one that is the path to knowledge lies through elitistic rare uplifted as in uplifted from the people expensive and and rigorous forms of learning you have to like sacrifice your body and your entire life and you have to get these like you know esoteric reagents that work in these weird ways and they cost a lot of money and you have to go on quest for them and all that stuff and only the wizard in their tower can perform this very powerful magic and, and that magic undoes reality to summons elementals and and it summons storms and casts spells of protection, all that stuff. And by contrast, magic realism is folkish. It derives from folklore. It is non exclusive. That is anybody who listens, who wants to hear the traditions and the rituals of realist magic can do so. It is not sequestered in the ivory tower, which is, of course, the academy, right? Um, You can find it speaking to the old woman in the village or the wandering knight or whoever. And it also doesn't shake reality, right? If you go one step further, and as I did in the essay, you quote Ursula Le Guin, it's useless, right? It always causes more problems than it solves. So that's the main distinction between these two systems of magic that I make in the essay and, and in general, when I talk about these things.
1: Particularly what was interesting as well about how, even though high magic seems to be depicted as more global or more universal, it's particularly, it's almost a dialectical counterpose to it and that it is anti-local. It is the abstract universal. It's almost like um, Helena P. The, uh, the secret chiefs. It's very much what you find in a lot of magic considered as a system. It is the golden dawn kind of thing.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's like uh, Frasier described it in the Golden Bough, right? It is mm. the sister, the occulted sister of science. Mm. Uh, this sort of magical system is just science with different assumptions on the path towards truth. But other than that, it plays by the same rules. There is one accepted truth, only the expert can access it. It mm. has to be investigated or sought after in rarefied, sterile environments, like a lab. Right? The Wizard's Tower is a lab, mm. famously hinted at by, in the Book of the New Sun right? Sorry, I, I have spent the last like six months <laughs> yeah. of my life rereading the Book of the New Sun and recording podcasts about it. So so my mind goes there um, immediately. Like Wolf, when in, in the Book of the New Sun, um, in the third book, you reach the giant's castle, it's just a laboratory, mm. right? And Wolf basically says, what's the difference between the magician's castle or tower and a laboratory? It's the same thing. So they play by the same rules. And of course, it aspires to be the universal, just like science does. Science is elitist and disconnect. Well, some science, right? Not all science, but Western science, right? Academic science um, aspires to be universal, but it is anything but. It is you know paywall to death. You have to pay one hundred and fifty dollars to read the article, sort of thing.
1: Yeah, like quite like this this parallel, particularly between high magic and its sort of global outlook and the university and its only attempt to be universal. And it does bring magical realism as a great front for talking about technology. And technology, and as a form of or a mode of human creativity in general. I mean, in in your analysis of Dishonored, I quite like this because magic is brought in as a commonplace magical realist factor. This technology, this magic, is everywhere, and its condition of possibility for that society is that it is everywhere because it relies on proletarianized peoples to operate these technologies. But at the same time, high magic isn't simply a counterposition to the magical real, but it is actually it can actually be elevated to the point of being higher magic. Particularly you know, in just using dishonored again, uh, in in the form of the church means that you know, regular people can't use magic. Only the state can. It has to have a monopoly, not yeah. only on imagination and creativity, but also on the violence that that creativity can bring forth itself. And this is where in the essay you talk a lot about the the Hegelian dialectic of mastery and servitude, and where this this can be a site of uh, struggle. I want to ask how that works in terms of magic as a means of production, as a way of depicting means of production, as well as a means of imagining productivity.
2: That's um, an ongoing question that I've uh, found myself, you know, just like everything Hegel, right? You never have one answer. It's kind of like an ongoing process. and, And I think actually another bad person who wrote interesting things, aka Heidegger, you know, he's relevant here as well because of this idea of the tool, right? So Almost. So when you read Hegel, it's it's actually one of the most literary passages. And I'm talking about the part where, uh, by the way, as a Hebrew speaker, I have to remind myself actively to not say master slave. Um, because that's just how it was translated into Hebrew. So I, I know today you say master servant to avoid like connotations and stuff like that.
1: Yeah, it's so, Herrschaft shaft and connects. it's more like sort of knight
2: and knight and master, I guess. Yeah, I mean we can do a whole podcast on how yeah. people how <laughs> philosophy in German was translated into Hebrew. Super interesting topic. Um, but skipping over that, in the, the part where Hegel talks about master servant um, dialectics is, is is part of the, the one of the most literary parts of Hegel. It's just written in relatively easy to understand language. And what he says there is that the master believes himself to be the superior of the servant because the servant is answering all of the needs that the master has. But unbeknownst to him, he is containing his own negation right? Because the servant becomes the person that can use the tools. The tools are ready to hand for the servant in a way that they are not for the master. Mm. And were the master, were the servant to understand this, says Marx, he would be, he would immediately say, wait, so why, right? Like, why is this dialectic reinforced? Why should I not, um, use this knowledge of the tool? And, you know, one of the best examples, I mean, this is fictional, right? But in, um, De Tocqueville's history of the French Revolution, obviously written from De Tocqueville's perspective as, as a liberal conservative, he, he recounts the story of, um, the day after the revolution, where the nobles had to wake up and realize that they don't know how to make butter and they can't milk cows and they can't till fields and they can't clean their castles and, excuse me for the profanity, but they can't wipe their own asses, (laughs) right? Like they can't even take care of their own bodies because the servants have been have been doing it for them. Now, if you go to dishonor, then you bring in magic into the equation high fantasy or high magic says the noble does not need the the servant. I'm I'm rereading Jack Vance's Tales of the Dying Elf. He preferred to call it another title, but I don't care because he was an asshole. So I'm going to keep calling it Tales of the Dying Elf. And it literally opens with this wizard calling other wizards on this magic device and making them subservient to him. Mm. Like quiver before my might. That's literally the first scene of the book. So that's what high magic wants to say, right? The noble has all the power. Whereas magic realism... If you think about Borges and Gabriel Garcia Marquez, but also more contemporary examples like Angelica Gordishe, which is criminally underread, and her uh, books were recently translated to English, um, and they're on small, small bill press. Shout out to them, great, great um, uh, publishing house. So um, sh- she and also those other authors that I cited are all about the noble thinks he's strong, but he knows nothing about magic. Like he thinks about swords and men and siege engines and um, economy. And um, in some cases in Gordesher, also the control over animals. There's a part where there's like a parade of 500 minks. And the the emperor thinks that's power. But the the servant child who works in the gardens knows that actual power is being able to talk to the minks. One-on-one, right? Like ask them what's happening to them. Understanding the world itself and not control over that world. Was that clear? I felt like that was a mishmash of ideas, <laughs> but uh, that, that, as I said, it's a work in progress, like crystallizing this. And I probably need to go back and read Hegel again, but I don't want to. So that's where we are. I mean, just thinking
1: about uh, the magical realism and the political imagination, that what I, I'm very sympathetic because as someone who is te- technically a Hegel scholar on the Deleuzean podcast, I mean, <laughs> I do like the idea from John McDowell that it is also an internal struggle based on uh, the mastery is of is the transcendental eye, is the eye of the I think that accompanies my representations, is that the mastery point or is the empirical subject of experience that actually takes in all the objects, actually senses and feels them and works on them and produces the things that the I think thinks over. Then there's, a, there's an internal struggle of imagination that masters in that master, in that, uh, master and servants here Netshaf dialectic I think.
2: Yeah, so 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 that's a really interesting point by the way, and this is like I think the only place I can ever talk about this, but this also ties into Fichte, right? And this idea mm-hmm. of the I that is the object of the I and the I that is perceived, right? The self that is perceived in high magic, the self, you know, uh, the supreme self, right? You're trying to get to that supreme self through the perceived self. You look inwards as a wizard. You sit in your tower. You light your incense. You you um um you open your grimoires, and what you're trying to do is to master this power that's within you to become in um, the master of the sup- the supernal. Some, sometimes mm-hmm. described that way, right? Like not the supernatural, the supernal beyond this plane of creation. Whereas with magic realism. You know, it's the parable of the oak and the willow. The idea is to bend before the supernal, to let the supernatural take over you, to stand in the light of history and understand that you are a tiny, tiny part of this crazy like length of time. That's another thing that you o- also see in um also Le Guin, for example, and Gordisher and other authors of that, of that ilk, like this idea that I'm, you call me a wizard, I'm a caster of magic, I'm simply a conduit. Right. Magic has always existed and I am simply some sort of manifestation of it. So the difference is the, and again, going, going back to the dialectic, right? Like what are you trying to do when you encounter a different subject? Our instinct is to make that subject into an object, right? The only voice that's allowed to exist behind my eyes is mine own. Nothing else can be cognizant or be conscious. That's what the wizard does, right? Everything becomes a plaything in their hands. Everything is clay. Whereas the magic realist is a part of a community, a part of a a civilization, a part of love and empathy and a family and so on. And they can't make things into objects, right? They don't. They don't see the world as clay, but rather something that flows through them and is channeled through them and so on.
1: One question I had about the idea of magic as a technology, just rereading this this piece. And it seems like at some points, it seems like the because magical realist position, as you say, is neither inherently reactionary nor inherently radical. It's an a contested field. Does that mean sometimes that when we portray magical technologies in fiction or in art, that they can sometimes achieve a kind of neutrality, or is it an always constant flowing state of between who owns it? Because I'm thinking about something like, um, I think about Bioshock as an example of a magical realist text. And it's The the magic of the magic of the technology, the means of production that in something like Bioshock, it's even if it is about two capitalists contesting over this, but what they're contesting over is, you know, this resource, this this atom, this sea slug which they have to incubate in sort of captured in, in captured little girls. I mean it's, is, is is there is it is it sort of stuck in the dialectic magical realism sometimes, or is it also able of also able to sort of relinquish or transform those technologies rather than reappropriate them? Is that is that one of the risks that keeps it in this constant flow between being appropriated for sort of you know, proletarian ends or being appropriated for reactionary ends?
2: I think the kind of specter that is haunting this conversation is guns. Guns are a very interesting discussion within leftist circles, right? And the question that's being asked by a lot of people on the left is the question that you just posed. Are guns neutral or are they inherently a technology that needs to be shunned and is, it gives power only to the oppressor? And at the, the more left you go, the more t- people will obviously tend towards the materialist answer, which is guns are neutral, just like every other tool. Factories can make tanks. And they can make medicine, Mm. they can make bombs, and they can make food. Just like with guns, guns can be used to, you know, kill minorities by the cops, or they can be used to overthrow the government. But I think with guns and the way that they are kind of like a cul-de-sac, kind of like a dead end, is that the state, I mean, that is the modern state, capitalist state, has so much years of experience on us in how to use guns effectively that we have no shot of catching up, right? Like, I'm Mm -hmm. not saying people shouldn't have guns. People can have guns if they want to. But this idea that you will be so good at using guns that you will overfall the state is absurd. It was true in the 1850s because the state was embryonic then, and it also had no idea how to deploy violence. It was bad at it. It was a child. But today, the state is... Again, maybe this is a high high fantasy sort of way to look at it. Mm. It's a level 50 wizard, right? With uh, with cross classes and artifacts and stuff like that. And you walk up with your level one wand of fireball and you think you're going to defeat them. So that's that also goes back to magic as neutral or not. If you play on the grounds of, of high magic, you are literally trying to take on Tolkien, Vance, Monty Cook, Gary Gygax, these titans of culture that have instilled, like walk up to a person in the street and say, how does a wizard look? Okay, you'll get arrested, so don't do that. But let's say you Mm. could do that. They would draw a person with a pointy hat and a staff. Mm. right? And if you ask them, what spell does this wizard cast? They would say fireball or cone of silence or something, cone of cold. It's so ingrained in our culture that when you try to defeat them at their own game, you're going to lose. It's just not going to work. And Mm -hmm. by the way, I think that's also why Bioshock, I love the game, I love the series and so on, but it inherently, I think, failed at what it tried to say. Like if it had some sort of statement about libertarianism and technology Mm -hmm. and wealth and whatever, it completely failed because it came off as either, you know, people who didn't understand the criticism and thought it was showing Ayn Rand in a positive light, God forbid, Mm -hmm. or the inverse, people who didn't, got its critique, but were left with, okay, and... Like, what's the alternative that Bioshock offers? There's no really an interesting discussion there about the ownership over these sisters and Adam and all that stuff. Mm. Because it's trying to play the game with the libertarian's tools, Mm. right? The discourse is still posited within the libertarian confines of the discussion.
1: Simple as, I (laughs) Yeah,
2: I mean, again, you know, I i feel like every time i talk about these things i have to say like i'm not a cancel culture guy i'm not saying don't play bioshock or like don't play D. like play whatever you want tolkien is one of my favorite authors i literally have like the two trees of gondor tattooed on my leg it's all good but i think it's naive for people to say i want to critique fantasy mm. but don't take away my toys i still want to have gandalf i still want to mm. have fancy and systems of magic all power to them they can try. But I think it's doomed to failure because you're not challenging the foundations of of the work you're trying to critique. So you're just offering an alternative within the confines of the discourse instead of trying to breach it.
1: To put it in some very sort of post-autonomia terms, they're doing constituent power on the one ring, or as they should be doing destituent power. (laughs) We 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 need to cultivate destituent power, to paraphrase Frank Herbert, because Leroy Jenkins is not actually materialist. You can't. You can't just run in. I,
2: maybe he is. By the way, like uh, this is a complete tangent, but what, an interesting thing you said. Like Leo Jenkins is a person right? It's hard to understand that there's like a physical biological entity walking around that corresponds to this avatar called Leroy Jenkins. Maybe he's a Marxist. Maybe he's like this hardcore Maoist, you know, with the cap and like the yeah. Mao uniform. We don't know, but 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 no one has thought to ask because it's not about Leroy Jenkins, the person. It's about Leroy Jenkins, the avatar, right? Mm. And, and again, like you go to read Tolkien you know, it's very easy for leftists to like hand wave Tolkien and say, mm-hmm. "Oh, he's a conservative, he's a Christian, he's a bigot, whatever." But then you actually read what he wrote outside of Lord of the Rings and, and in other places, and it's not that simple. I mean, don't get me wrong; the the work itself is conservative and white and and all that stuff. But in other places, Tolkien had really interesting things to say about um, you know the the corrupting or corrosive power of religion and how faith can become a tool of resistance and all these really interesting things. So I just don't, don't think that it high magic wants it to fit into boxes. Magic mm-hmm. Realist understands that like the boxes are overflowing and they're spilling everywhere and everything is odd and um, all over the place.
1: And I guess we can sort of see the rise of magic realism, or well, it's not certainly rise, but it's repopularization works people such as Le Guin and, and the like, from an internal struggle, even possibly a, a methodological struggle within like the actual, the actual cult magic itself. I mean, this is a time when from the seventies onwards, we start getting people, like, you know, we get a, Oh God, who wrote? Who wrote Junkie? It said it's going to be edited out. Burroughs, that was it. Sorry, we get Burroughs, we get Peter Carroll, we get the, we get uh, un- we get Uncle Bob, and all of the um, Discordians. There is like this anti-systemic tendency that's kind of not neither folky nor fully. It's more postmodern.
2: So I, I think Le Guin is a really interesting figure to cite in here and look at her works. Full disclosure, my all-time favorite author, um, but but because she's so interesting, it's so. Let's take um, The world for World is Forest, which is the book that she wrote about Vietnam, the Vietnam War, or The Telling, which she wrote about the Cultural Revolution in China. I take these books, even though I don't like to, because they're her most embarrassing works. Um, They're very well written, incredible books, but their take on Vietnamese, the Vietnamese conflict or Chinese culture is so situated within American liberalism um, that the message of the world for world is forest ends up being almost a noble savage kind of look Look at the Vietnamese, right, and what America and France and all these colonial powers did there, whereas the underlying message of the telling is Mao bad, right, for like destroying the ancient Chinese ways. And both are frankly really embarrassing takes. Now, why do I bring this up? Because also Le Guin is trying to create in many of her works, an American folklore, in the sense that Tolkien tried to create a British folklore, a new British mythology. And to do that, She does some great things, right? Like she goes back to Native American cultures and looks at them. Although we can talk about her biography. I don't know if you know this, but her father was in the center of an anthropological catastrophe where he lied about the origins of a Native American person. Um, And she lived in the West Coast and California and all that stuff. So she takes those elements and from them, she inherits all this magic realism. But she, she doesn't go far enough, right? She stops at showing how corrosive these ideas can be to modern American society because she doesn't want to corrode American society. She's very much in love with Portland and Seattle and California and, and you know, the sweeping mountains and the deserts and the American, not manifest destiny because that's already a dirty world by the 70s for someone as liberal as Ursula Le Guin, but in, in any other world, right? Like this f- fascination with the, the American romantic, right? So she doesn't go that next step. Whereas the people she's drawing from, you know, they come from South America, which is a whole other, you know, cauldron of, of influences and, and ideas and resistances and so on. And, and the take, the different takes are, are very, very, very uh, felt. So my point with this is maybe going back to your question about neutrality, while I think high magic is always has this conservative element to it, magic realist is not necessarily radical just by being magic realist, right? You you don't just put in magic realism and you're done. That's it, you're radical. There's there needs to be some sort of one step further to talk about its corrosive nature, which is something that I talk a lot about in, in my essay.
1: Absolutely. And but but before I just want to open this up to my up my, my comrades either side of the screen, either side of the screen, because I've been I've been taking too much. One thing I do want to say though is that if because this is mainly like a European philosophy podcast, I think one of the the ur-text for me of European philosophy's own magic realism and i encourage every listener to go uh, to go read it is the oldest systematic program of german idealism now we don't <laughs> now we don't know who wrote it it could have been heidelin it could have been hegel it could have been Schelling. it's in hegel's handwriting though and it gets Kant wrong in the first paragraph so i think it's hegel um, <laughs> But it is this text of philosophy coming down and generating this new mythology of reason. It's the idea of making philosophy sort of sensuous, bring it down to the earth, taking it away from this very priestly role that was previously put forward to it. And it is this beautiful flowing text of both elevating at the same time as it brings down to earth and has a very sort of French revolutionary tone to it. So just to anyone, anyone listening, go read. I'll, I'll put a link to it. I transcribed it from the books actually on my blog, so... You haven't got to buy the book. I'll, I'll post that in the links. But um will say to Craig and Will.
0: Thanks, Eden, for coming on the show. I have to say, today's topic is a little bit outside of my wheelhouse. And I would say my primary points of reference for discussion here are Joseph Campbell and Carl Jung uh-huh. and, yeah. and that sort of thing. And so you're probably cringing deep inside right now, so I apologize no, 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 no. in advance. <laughs> Heaven forbid. But the question, I, I think, is nonetheless important, which is you know the way that we understand magic, especially young people especially very young people, through uh, Harry Potter and so forth, often the way that we imagine magic comes through the filter of the hero's journey, right? right? And there's an extent to which that even the project of Carl Jung and subsequent archetypal psychologists and depth psychologists, in some way, shape, or form picked up that framework in a way that democratized the hero's journey, often through the the motif of magic. And I've always wondered to myself, if there isn't something inherently reactionary just about that structure, one could posit that there's a sort of universalism, a kind of monomyth to the whole thing. But on the other hand, this is been what's given to us time and time again by the media, by stories, because there's a, there's a sort of formula there that works. Is it because it's been given to us so many times before? And I think one, one of the challenges here too is that you know, there's a hyper-individualism about the hero's journey in some sense. There's somebody yeah. who's been marked. They've been taken out of the social order a priori. And the irony here is they often come from either poverty Or they're an orphan or something like that. But then they, of course, are marked for this elite destiny, whether it be as a Jedi Knight or as a wizard, like you're saying. And Mm -hmm. I'm curious if any of your research kind of runs up against that. For sure. I mean, Joseph Campbell and Carl Jung, you know, it's the classic
2: skeleton in the closet because I I used to really like them, you know, years ago when I was starting out, and I still think that there's a lot to be, to take from the theories, Jung more than Campbell, I would say, but I think that the limitation of the theory is exactly what you said. And to go on this, um, to go with this trend of using popular media to talk about it, think about the matrix right? The Matrix is very much a hero's journey, right? He literally gets a call. Neo, that is, he refuses it. Then the call comes back again. It's literally a call on the phone, right? The the Wachowski siblings didn't do that, or sisters, I should say, didn't do that on accident, right? It's a parable. But what is the ultimate underlying message of the Matrix? The ultimate underlying message of the Matrix is you are not the one. You will make absolutely no difference because you think you're a Neo, like you're not. There's only one of them, right? Only one Neo. And that's the problem with Joseph Campbell in particular, the idea of the monomyth, because the hero, as you said, is an individualistic idea and only one person gets to be the hero, right? Or... You know, you can go up to 10 or 20 if you're talking about like this ensemble thing, like Tolkien, you know, the Silmarillion, you can say that it's all the elves of (laughs) the
3: elves.
2: Right, seven samurai, for example, but they're individuals, right? And they all have their own journeys and their own um, catharsis at the end of it and their own transformations. Think about how their environment transforms around them. Their environment transforms only for their transformation, right? Neo... Is like the Philosopher's Stone, if we're going to Harry Potter, right, that within which change percolates and changes. And only when he unlocks the ultimate power to defeat the machines can, you know, humanity have a a shot. Now, they, they sort of undermine that in the second and third movies, which are awful, but they sort of undermine that by showing like the other people in Zion, you know, fighting the robots and they're just as important. But it rings hollow. Because you compare it to the first movie and you're like, this is not what you sold me, right? You sold me the individual, right? So, but then going to Jung, I mean, whenever we talk about Jung, it's kind of like talking about Wittgenstein, like which Jung, right? Early Jung, middle Jung, Christian Jung, right? Like all these different manifestations. And if you go to the, the very last things that Jung wrote, he takes this very interesting, very weird and very radical reading of Christianity and the Eucharist, specifically, right, as the, the means to go from to take the individual hero's journey of Jesus, and make it the journey of all of us, right? Like when we, again, I'm not I'm not a practicing Christian or a practicing religious anything, right? But when we practice these rituals, the sacraments, when we take on the Eucharist and Ash Wednesday, we draw the cross and all that stuff, we're walking Christ's hero's journey. So that I agree with you on that—that that it can be democratized. But the final step. Is to ask, how can we do away with the hero's journey altogether and still connect individuals around a narrative, a story, right? Something that will move them without telling them that you are the chosen one, right? Without needing an author or any king to return or, or, or any sort of individual um, person. And I mean... For that, I think the best person to read is Mao, right? Like that's one of Mao's basic questions. How do you motivate a mass of people without falling into worship
0: of individuals? Did that answer your question? Yeah, you know, (laughs) and it made me think in the course of this, and of course, we're dropping a lot of names of authors and movies and whatnot, and you made me recall The movie The Holy Mountain by Alejandro Jodorowsky and how the end of that film almost intends, my reading of it is, it intends to parody the hero's journey in some sense, where the camera pulls away with the director there to show you that this has been a, a creation, a construction. Yeah. But I mean, that's why that's why Khodorovsky's
2: Dune would never have been made. Because if, if you go and watch the documentary, Khodorovsky says that he had this vision for Dune that was completely divergent from what Herbert wrote, right? Where Arrakis becomes this consciousness state, right? Arrakis, the planet, becomes this hub that beams its energies all across the galaxy and everybody wakes up. That's not what Frank Herbert wrote. Like Frank Herbert's books are ultra super individualistic, right? It's all about the first two books are all about Paul being, uh, sorry, if I, I love Dune, but I'm very critical of it, being emo and complaining all the time and, oh, my life is so bad and so on. And then the third book is about his children and then the fourth one is about Leto the second and so on and so forth. It's always about individuals. Um, whereas Khodorovsky, I think, and he has his own problems and limitations, of course, but um, he wanted to take this into this kind of like social transformation, also drugs because he did a lot of those right lsd changing the mind and spices is this kind of like radical drug and stuff like that and that's why it would never have been made even if he didn't want like mick jagger and the lee and orson wells and all those people and he would have stayed on budget no one would have actually made it because it it, it just wasn't the vision that they wanted to tell from the story
1: so just to talk a little bit about this acidic quality you mentioned in the the text where it can be corrosive particularly under a capitalist framework or a capitalist he- cultural hegemony, as, as as Gramsci put it, and as you quote Gramsci, in which magical realism, a kind of excess of meaning, can overflow and sort of over—I'm not going to say overcode—can overwhelm a certain kind of um, capitalist austerity, in which it overflows meaning to such an extent that, for example, just to give the example from um, *On Becoming a God in Central Florida*, the system becomes becomes more aware of its own grift than possible, and it becomes to fall into these imaginative logics, which even tries to escape itself. In that sense, mm-hmm. it corrodes the very structures of disenchantment that okay. maintain the whole system in its complete cynicism. And this is ties into a lot, I guess, of what Lars and talked talk about when he talk about the age of cynicism being the age of of, of capital.
2: Yeah, I mean, the I, the notion of, of of corrosiveness in this context. Um, again, like Craig said, we're we're name dropping constantly, but these are just the reference points, right? Um, It's not like an appeal to authority, it's just where these ideas come from, is, you know, Mark Fisher's unfinished work, right? Um, Acid communism, which what is it? No one really knows. A lot of people have tried to guess like what he would have intended had he you know, stayed alive and and wrote acid communism, but you can kind of glean what it means or has come to mean to people who use it today. And this idea of communism is this cultural force that starts to like acid eat away at the assumptions and the aesthetics, um, of, you know, late capitalism. So that, that's where the idea came to me. But if we, if we try to uh, um, interrogate it, as I did in the essay, disenchantment is a myth, right? Like the world, the world wasn't actually disenchanted. What happened is mm-hmm. that a, a subsection of the people on there, a massive one, that is Europeans, disenchanted themselves, right? They disenchanted their worldview. They convinced themselves that they're living in a disenchanted world. But for many people, like indigenous populations and oppressed people across the world, but also just non-Western societies, the world is very much enchanted, right? Um, and, and disenchantment never happened. But what Unbecoming a God in Central Florida does is, is posits a way for us to show the lie, right? It yes. corrodes the lie. It it tries to think of a way to use magic realism, which again is inherently enchanting, right? Everything is magical. It's not the wizard's tower. It's not the grimoire. It's this tree. It's this animal. It's this person. It's everywhere. It tries to put the lie to the myth of disenchantment. Because if you think about... You know, the tree outside my window, there's a really big oak outside my window, which I love because whenever I get too stressed, I just look at it and it kind of gives me a different perspective, right? This entire ecosystem is happening without me. doesn't matter what happens to me, right? I get fired tomorrow, nothing happens to the tree, right? Once I make it magical, now if someone would come along, a capitalist and would say, I need to tear down this tree so I can build another, I don't know what, like a, a stall. I would fight against it. Because Mm -hmm. that is no longer just a dead object to me to be manipulated and to be extracted. It is a living, magical, enchanted thing. Even if I don't pray to it or I don't believe it actually does magic, it becomes magical because I relate to it as a subject, going back to Hegel. And that's exactly what happens in the show. So just to talk about the show a bit, Garbo, who's like the scam artist, he's this like... um, You know, this idea of an American who wants to be a French noble in the 18th century. He wears these like white suits and he has this mansion and servants and all that stuff. And he's very charismatic. He's kind of like a prophet. But everything he says is bullshit, right? He doesn't believe it himself. It's all a hoax. In one of his speeches, he talks about the pelican, um, how we should be a pelican. By the way, it's a Shakespeare reference, but we'll leave that to the side. Um, How we should be the pelican and ferocious like the pelican. And one of the people in the crowd... Um, Bonal, who is one of the main characters is like an up and coming salesperson he takes it seriously right? like he thinks the pelican is not a metaphor it's like the actual bird is magical so when he happens upon a pelican on the grounds of that mansion, he kills it he hunts it and mm-hmm. serves it up to Garbo as this look, I have slain the pelican I am the knight errant you are the king, just like you said in your speech, and by offering this pelican to you you must now knight me. Now, that puts Garbo in a very dangerous position, right? Either he can say, what the hell are you talking about? Like, I didn't mean anything that I said. This is all a hoax. This is all nonsense. Or he has to play it straight and make, elevate Garbo to keep his entire system of nonsense in check, which is what he does. Like, he literally knights him with a golden gun. He gives him a golden gun and makes him his bodyguard, right? Right. But the minute that he does that, the minute that he buys his own nonsense, that's the end. Because now Bonar upsets his entire system from inside with his true believer nonsense. He makes Garbo even more radical. He makes him believe all his other nonsense. He drinks his own Kool-Aid. His organization starts to distrust him and it eventually, spoilers, leads to his demise. He dies because of this, right? So the second that he, he took his myth and made it reality and bought too much into it, he was done. The acid was in the foundations, right? The mm. magic acid that that says that every person can slay the pelican, every person can become a knight, everyone can understand the mysteries. We just have to listen to Garbo. He said it, so you'd, you'd pay him, right? Mm. But if you take him for his word, I can become a prophet, right? As long as I do all the moves and I read all the books, I can become as smart as you because that's what you're selling me. So the minute that I actually believe in it and I actually enact it and I actually try to use the magic, you are done, right? You cannot cope with this magic realism because it goes against the lie and the scam that you use to try and make money off of this thing. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's a very interesting show for other reasons as well. Of course, Kirsten Dunst and all the rest of the cast—they do an amazing job. But the, the the kind of turning point, the linchpin of the pelican is is fascinating. And I also had never seen something like that on TV, like someone killing an, an animal and also a pelican—not really an animal you usually see depicted—and offer it up as this like quest completed. Give me the rewards now. It was it was a very. Um, Strong moment. By the way, in case anyone is listening and thinking that I'm, it's not in the show and I'm reading into it, um, the writers of the show have seen my essay and they said that I totally nailed it. and uh, uh, They really liked it. You know, I, I know death of the author and all that stuff, sure. But uh, in case anybody's thinking that, like, I don't know, I got high and watched the show and made this all up, um, it's very much in there. And I, I think that's uh, fascinating.
1: An absolute moment of consciousness raising, and definitely in the Fisherian sense, I mean, in Mark Fisher's sense, particularly in the post-capitalist desire lectures. I'm thinking of sort of when... Capitalists start believing their own bullshit. I mean, meta. The game. Yeah. The game is becoming more up because they start to believe their own bullshit.
2: <laughs> but I think. I think the, the point is, and Mark, and I think Mark Fisher also wrote about this when he wrote about um, Red Plenty, mm. right? We a lot of leftists look at the at the lie that capitalism tells us that we can all be rich and we can all be prosperous and there's no cost for anything mm. and everything can be attainable, and they think they have to um, posit an alternative. No, actually, the w- the world is about work and rigorous work and labor. And after mm. the revolution, things will be hard and we'll spend like 50 years in this hardship, just like in the USSR, and everybody will have to pitch in and so on. Whereas Fischer said, no, no. The secret to defeating capitalism is saying, you're absolutely right. We can have it all. We can all of us be rich. We can all of us be healthy and eat and travel the world and, and live uh, fulfilling lives. Under communism, right? The promise of capitalism is realized in communism, not in capitalism, right? Communism is not about promising something else. It's promising the same thing that capitalism does, but it actually promises it instead of lying to cover up for extractionism, imperialism, and and so on, Mm -hmm. right? So the idea here is not to fight, you know, capitalism by disagreeing with it. Just like with the Pelican, right? The way to fight Garbo is not to call the cops or found a different scam, but it's to tell him, here I am. Show me, show me the abundance that you've promised me. I want it. I will do anything that it takes to do it. I will overthrow your government. I will rebel. I will unionize. I will strike. I will do all of these things to get what you promised me, right? Um, so so I think that's that's how it translates into this uh, relationship that we have with uh, capitalism. It reminds me a little bit
1: of this story I, it's almost certainly something that Zizek said at one point about this this turkish communist party uh, official going to meet <sighs> stalin during the 30s and then he's, he's the guy just looking around at all this chaos and stalin says well you have to you got to break a few eggs to make an omelet and the, the turkish communist party official replies well i've i've seen a lot of broken eggs where's this omelet you're promising and that's kind <laughs> of the dynamic that's the, that that's, got, that's going on here and it in that sense, the magic realism perspective becomes, yeah, not so much like perspective of re-enchantment, but in rejecting the myth of disenchantment through a, a fundamentally different, maybe phenomenological notion of relation to things, not treating, not treating things as things, as it's. And I know you draw quite a lot on the phenomenology of Martin Buber in uh, talking about Thinking about things as Dao versus thinking about things as mere abstract, uh, purely instrumentalized it's And I know we've already you've already gone through that a little bit in talking about the tree. But I was running in talking about this this where this boober stuff fits in in terms of the Dao relation, the totality relation, and the sort of the the world expansiveness of this very localized form of magic. But at the same time, in its locality, to get too Hegelian about it, it eventually develops and becomes the entire enchantment of the concrete world.
2: I think I saw someone else had, had something to say before I go on this long Buberian rant. <laughs> no, by all means,
0: Eden, do your thing and, and I'll ask my question when you're okay, done. Okay, cool, cool, cool.
2: Buber, yeah. So my, my relationship with, with um Martin Buber is a very interesting one and very personal. Um I first took a seminar on him by accident. I just needed the points, I needed the credit. Um and I was it was stuck in this you know, the Jewish philosophy department in the Tel Aviv University has the crappiest building, right? They stick them like in the end. And there's no AC. It's like crumbling shambles. Um, and I had to like sit in the Israeli summer um, and listen to someone talk about one of the most like, you think Hegel is like unapproachable? Buber is worse. Like it's this mix of German idealism, proto-hippie thought. um Eastern philosophy, it's like, it's so hard to read. Um, So I I zoned out and I was sure I was going to fail the class. Like I had no idea what was happening, but I took the test and I actually got an A. um, And I was like, wait, did I get something from this? Like did I, did this seep in? And I convinced myself that it hadn't. And then three, four years later, it started popping up. Like the way that I saw the world and understood things that were happening to me and my relationships. And so I'm speaking primarily about I and thou. So the main idea in I and thou is exactly that defeat of the object-subject relations, right? Buber says there are, when you say m- me and something else, there are three ways in which you can say it. You can say I and it, and again, this is in German, so you can imagine what the original German is and the differences between all these verbs and so on. Yeah. So I and it, that's I and object. And that's how 95% of us spend 99.9% of our lives. Even if we don't want to admit it, most of the things that we encounter and the people are understood as it, as an object. And that's the discourse of the extractionist, the capitalist, the businessman, and so on. And then you can say, I and thou, right? I, a subject, and another subject. Something that has limits, but those limits overlap with mine. I can talk to to the you, to the thou. It's not entirely alien. It's not the other. It's a thou that stands before me and I can feel its boundaries and I can feel mine, but they're in relation to each other. What Buber called, again, translated from the German, reciprocity. There's reciprocity between us. I say things, the, the you says things and so on. And then behind the thou, and it's literally behind, he uses the verb to look behind. When you look behind the thou, there's the universal thou. And the universal vow is the you in which all of us are a part. And that happens once in a lifetime. A few times in your lifetime, if you're lucky, you glimpse the universal thou behind things. And suddenly the lines between me and you and the tree, famously, Buber said that you could talk to trees and talk to cats and talk to dogs and all that stuff and talk to anything. All those lines, all those boundaries that you feel in the reciprocity, you understand that there is no reciprocity. There is no flow because it's all one. And inside the one, things can't flow. If you're thinking of uh, Spinoza, yes. If you're thinking of Cartesian flows, yes. It's all inside this mishmash there of Buberian thought, not, not in a derogatory way. He's a brilliant thinker. Um, so the applications to magic realism and to radicalism should be kind of maybe not obvious, but clear from, from the stuff that I said, right? This is another tool to look at the tree and say, this is not an object. This is not a toothpick. It's not a match. It's not something ready to be made. It is an ob- a subject, sorry, in itself that can communicate with me. In what sense do trees not talk? They they don't talk in a sense that I don't listen. But if I were to learn how to look at them as a subject, they would have things to say to me. Um, if you think about the ants in Tolkien, right? They might say it slowly because they're trees, or it might be subtle, or it might be weird, or I might not be able to understand them, but they have things to say to me. One one more name drop, a, a person exploring these ideas for fiction is Jeff Vandermeer. In Annihilation, but also in his other works like City of Saints and Mad Men and Dead Astronauts and so on, he explores this idea that the reason we have climate change to begin with is because for the last 300 years or 400 years, we have conceptualized the entire planet as an object which we can just do whatever we want with. And now... The, that object is telling us, no, n- no, you cannot do that, right? One of the most powerful scenes in Dead Astronauts, Vandermeer's Dead Astronauts, is at the end, a fox, through the perspective of a fox, he goes uh, on this rant against humanity. And it's like Jeff Vandermeer imagining what a, an angry rant by a fox would sound like. Right, like you're taking our habitats with your lights, and you're covering everything with asphalt, and you, and you sit in your parties, and like you drink your alcohol, you're literally breathing poison and 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 death and, and so on. It's it's a flawed attempt and it's a limited attempt. You can't ever speak with the voice of a fox, but the idea is to think about these things we, we we're used to call objects as subjects. One one a sentence on this rant, This also um, ties into high versus. Realist magic, because in high magic, you conjure and transform and and summon and transubstantiate, you manipulate objects, whereas in magic realism, you work with them, right? You bless the river for its own language, you speak to the birds and understand what they're telling you. You use the healing qualities of honey, right? Like you're using the the subjects themselves, and often you apologize in many of the magic realist fables, right? Like you're you're giving up, you're taking a service, you pay for it. So so that's
0: another you know line across which this works. Yeah, thanks for that, Eden. I mean, you have me thinking about so many things that I almost don't even know where to begin. I think the sort of overriding question that I have, especially after having read your essay, is the sort of practical program or praxis. Yeah, related to magic realism. And some of the things that stood out to me in your presentation here today is particularly that example of and you'll have to refresh my memory on it, that image of the adult or master figure, they're either the worker or they're the economist and they're the utilitarian. And the way that they interact with their environment is through consumption, through appropriation. Yeah. And on the other side, you have this figure of the child. They don't kill the animal. They, they can speak with the animal. Within that small vignette, we get a sense of what might have been elided over the course of European history. Here, I'm thinking about the work of James Hillman, who talks about soul. And I don't know if you're familiar with his work, but he's some very sort of strange Platonist slash Plotinist pantheist, Mm. right, who who uses the word soul in a way that attempts to recapture for us a different relationship to the world, one very similar to the one that you're talking about, especially with respect to phenomenology in the sense that in our world of hyper-utilization, hyper-appropriation, we fail to have these experiences where we say, Ah!" when we see things, that we yeah. can have this sort of communication or embrace of a tree outside of your window. And when the capitalist comes for that tree, for example, that's one of the things that you lose, is that you lose that effervescent communication or sense of the tree that gets you to say, "Ah." And I, I'm almost thinking, like, is there something in the magic realism world, or the world of that fiction, that attempts to invoke that sensibility? It's an interesting question. It's the one that I'm
2: asking these days, like asking myself on a day-to-day. A lot a lot of my friends who, who read the essay asked, "Okay, but what would you like me to do with this?" Exactly. Right? Like, what, "What should I do with this now?" And I think it's a very personal answer for me because this started as a program to maintain my own mental health. Right? Um I I mean, I'm not going to go into like Israeli economics or something like that. But basically the situation today in Israel is that if you don't work in high-tech, you are precarious, right? Um, that's the extent to which the high-tech industry has taken over the economy here. And and so I work for high-tech, right? I work for tech. I've worked for tech for the last 10 years. And not to be melodramatic, but it's soul deadening, right? It's awful. It's alienating. I mean, I'm not, again, I'm not... Uh, all, you know, in, in a sweatshop somewhere suffering, but it has its own challenges and, and, and eliminations. So magic realism and seeing the world as enchanted, and, and just to be clear here, like I, I, for example, I read tarot, but I don't believe in its ability to foresee the future. And I, 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 don't ascribe to any of the supernatural or superstitious parts of magic realism. I don't actually think that I can do magic. Right. Um, but that's not the point because it's a practice It helps me return some of the natural, the enchanted, the filled with soul, right, to the world around me. It helps me see the city that I live in, which is a nice enough city, but it's a city as more than just, you know, a collection of people with functions that make money for capitalists, but as a place where wonderful encounters can happen between man and animal, right, like we have jackals around here and sometimes i meet them in the middle of the night when i walk my dog and instead of just saying oh it's a jackal i should stay away because they have rabies or whatever i say wow i wonder what that jackal is thinking and it makes me feel better it just makes me feel better about the world that i uh, uh, am part of right so now if we if we try to step out of the personal and just my story and how it helps me that's what i hope that this will be able to do for others right as as a way an accessible way that doesn't deal with the occult and is not about secret knowledge or control or, or esotericism or, or whatever, to think about the reality as magical, right? As something worth fighting for, worth protecting and and worth living for. Again, back to the mental health perspective, right? You are not, um, if we're quoting um, God as an astronaut, the world is not a cold, dead place, right? Um, That's what magic realism tries to tell you. You don't have to go to the wizard tower. You don't have to be the guy that rains lightning down from the sky and conjures elementals. All the magic you need is already around you, right? That, by the way, ties back to depression, something that I wrote a long time ago about depression. One of the problems in how people talk about depression is that they set these immeasurable goals because they're not depressed themselves. They'll say something like, Go for a run once a week. That is attainable. But if you have depression, you know that it's not. Like you just asked me to slay the Cyclops, right? You just asked me to climb Mount Everest. So instead, you should give me even smaller goals, right? So when I help people, I suffered from depression myself in the past. And when people come to me for help or friends of mine or so on, I tell them, having this talk is a win. That's it. You've won. You've won for today. Tomorrow, all you need to do is write one line write a sentence that's a victory right and then shower once in two weeks not once every day not once a week two weeks super small goals and that again returns to the difference between high magic and low magic high magic is the run once a week you have to train yourself and take these reagents and sacrifice and and spend years and read these books Whereas low magic is like, you have to listen to the old woman that lives down the street, right? That's where enchantment lies. It's in your hands. It's right there. It's it's attainable. So the praxis of this is trying to learn the skill of listening to the world around you and the experiences that you have and seeing magic in them and seeing purpose in them and seeing worthwhileness in them instead of... Um, you know, trying to pursue these unattainable goals that oftentimes you get there and they don't, you don't even care about them anymore. Yeah. But but as I said, when I started, it's an ongoing question, right? I, I, I don't know. It, it still
3: needs to be interrogated. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's this moment in, in your essay, this phenomenological example you provide of opening the window, right? And the world just spills in, um, mm-hmm. in a way that. It's not like the Cartesian, like looking out the window, right, and trying to determine, like, sees the person on the bridge. One thing that I've gotten from this conversation, which I I don't think I've I've adequately understood, simply because this is a genre that's been so far outside of my interest as like a child, and now it's something Mm -hmm. that you know I'm slowly approaching, um, is that high magic seems to have this possibility through its structural implementation and the necessity to build a very particular series of political relationships around it, to sap the very intensity of the thing that yeah. made it special from the environment within which it's it's situated. Uh, and that can be, seems to be, univer- it couldn't be universal. It can be in a particular engagement or so on. So one question and I know Adam was talking about you know a, a destituent uh, magic is that can in literature and then also in life can a magical realist disposition coexist in an environment that's so so broadly coded in high magic? Can these two spaces come into conflict through a kind of selective sprouting ups of this different approach?
2: First of all, thank you for getting that reference to the meditations by Descartes, like looking out the window when when I wrote that. That was like the image I had in in my mind. By the way, speaking of something really dry that caused me wonder, like the first time I read the meditations was like this really big, awakening for me. Um, So to answer your question, I think that's exactly what I mean when I talk about the corrosive potential of magic realism. And maybe another metaphor that I can give here that is very popular with Indelizian circles is moss, right? Think about moss growing in concrete or growing around this iron structure, like this clad factory or something. Um, Eventually, the moss will win. Right, the moss will grow a centimeter every year, or something like that. And within all the nooks and crannies of of the island, and and the island, the factory itself seems indestructible. But if you fast forward five hundred years, it will crumble under the you know the undermining of its foundations. Now, I'm not saying we should wait five hundred years, right? Um, but that's exactly where this all this all comes together because to be revolutionary. In a magic realist scenario you don't have to i don't know throw a molotov cocktail at a police station or you know storm the the parliament all of those are both of those are important things but it opens up avenues of resistance that are more internal and more um, mental so when i read literature that tells me to be soft to be welcoming to be, to listen, to look at the world as magical, I am resisting everything else that everything else is telling me, right? Everything else tells me, no, be hard, be ambitious, be extractivist, look at your personal relationship as um, springboards towards success, right? That is what, at least myself, you know, again, working in a tech environment, you know, everything that everybody tells me is build your brand, Think about your next job. Um, Why would you do this task if it doesn't look good in your CV? Stuff like that. Or why would you help this person if they cannot help you down the line? So it's a form of resistance. Again, limited, small, vague, not, you know, immediately impactful, but I think incredibly powerful for the individual, right? And and, and this is a conflict that I I have a lot. You know, I'm I'm wondering how much I want to go down this tangent, but like I'm someone who is. On Mondays, I'm a Marxist Leninist and on Tuesdays, I'm an anarchist. And then on, on Wednesday, I'm, I'm like a Castroist. I, I, I move around within these leftist ideas because I haven't found one that, you know, answers anything completely, which is a good thing. The, the big problem with, you know, your old school Marxist Leninists, what the internet would call quote unquote tankies is that they have a lot of tools to give you when it's time to storm the winter palace. Right When the consciousness has been raised, when the mass is willing to back you, they have great ideas and we should listen to them. But tomorrow morning in the West, where we are defeated, we are defeated. Tomorrow the revolution is not coming. What do I do? Tomorrow. Right, if I go and for a Molotov of cocktail on the police station, that's adventurism. If I try to organize, I'm organizing with just Z people, and, and and if I just live my life and try to survive, then I'm complicit we need something to give us purpose to go on, right? To go on and, and to live our lives. And that's the, that's the moss. That's what magic realism, I hope, can do for us is, is, is tell us, you're right, the revolution is important and it, it should come and we should bring it about, but the world is already magical enough for us to
0: want to live to see that day. I'm glad you brought up the topic of moss. The others here on the podcast, they're already aware of this, of course, but I recently left my job and my home in urban Los Angeles mm. and i live kind of in the middle of nowhere well, as close as you can get while having some amenities within like a 10 mile reach a big part of the realization about being out here walking around in the woods where i live is seeing all the moss to the point where i thought of this concept of mossification as an alternative to massification yeah where you know soon we will be living in the ruderal landscape of The ruins of of capitalism. And it seems that there's a kind of praxis that can begin now. Moss doesn't grow all at once, like you said, right? It's a very slow growing process. There's casting out of spores that are invisible. I think this is an idea that I'd like to develop. I've journaled on it, but you've given me some inspiration here today. So I really appreciate that. My my pleasure. I also think it's a
2: fascinating topic. I I would recommend two works for you and and for anyone listening who wants to go deeper into... um Mass and, and massification. The first one is easier to read and it's Absalom for the Well-Built by Becky Chambers. Mm. Becky Chambers in general is a really interesting science fiction author uh, working today. And this is a story about a society not on earth that was hyper-industrial and then all the robots emancipated themselves. And as part of their emancipation, they wanted to completely detach themselves from humans. So what humans did, they rebuilt their society along sustainable lines without, without these robots and left the wilderness to regrow. They lived in the cities and the robots had the wilderness. And one of them, of course, goes into the wilderness and meets a robot. And my metaphor of the moss and the factory is formed there directly. Like there's a scene in there where they discuss that. One, two, in Jeff VanderMeer's Dead Astronauts, there's a character called Moss, And her thing is that she's Moss in the sense that she grows between dimensions. She grows between alternate realities. And at any point, her limbs are spread across these different versions. So Dead Astronauts is a very difficult read because it has versions. It actually has version numbers in the side of the paragraphs that tells you which version the paragraph is taking place in. But Moss spreads across all these versions right, and all these alternatives because she's rhizomatic because she's moss. And the conclusion to that story, which I won't spoil because it's a fantastic ending, um, has a lot to do with this like parallel existence, this, this mossification of things. So if you're looking to uh, read literature that deals with these topics, I would recommend those two things. And I think the last thing I want to say on that is also like the the physical attributes of moss that I mentioned, you know, softness, dampness, adaptability, so there's also like a, a mental model here to be adapted, right? If we talked about the metaphor of the oak and the willow, right? the oak stands in the storm and breaks and the willow bends and lets the wind pass over it, maybe, a, maybe we need a third part of that metaphor, right? Like what does the moss do when the storm comes along, right? Like how does its solvability um, look like?
1: It roots, it cushions, and it expands itself out for further intensification of its mossification of the universe of this plateau. <laughs> but King um, time. Thank you so much, Eden, for coming on. I'm just going to finish one thought. There is, if I want to sum this up for the for the inner experience listeners, that there is no going beyond the capitalist austerity without challenging the very austerity of the imagination. It's, it's, it's like Alan Moore's Promethea, the world ends and the imagination and the world and consciousness collapse it and they collapse together. And we have this new, this new childhood for humanity to paraphrase one achievement in the end of the game, Bloodborne. <laughs> um, uh, you want to plug heavy blog, death sentence?
2: Sure. Um, heavy blog is heavy.com. Uh, We've been running for almost uh, more than a a decade now. Um, Metal, but not just metal, post-rock, hardcore, pop, whatever whatever you want. Mostly deep dives and essays on music. So if you care about like the deeper levels of, of music and culture and stuff like that, check us out. Death Sentence, Death Sentence podcast, wherever you get your podcast. Me and a really, 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 really smart person called Langdon Hickman. Uh, talking about literature and philosophy and music and stuff like that. And actually, Gareth Watkins, the original host, is now back as well. Also a fiendishly clever uh, individual. Um, So check that out. One last plug. I also have a podcast called Anarchy SF, where I do anarchist readings of anarchist or otherwise science fiction, alongside with a friend of mine called Yanai. So check that out as well. And uh, that's it absolutely Um, for fans
1: of the first episode of Inner Experience which is coming to about a year old now check out Death Sentence's interview with Andy from Kaina he goes over and expands upon a lot of stuff we went over about his experiences with the UFO, with the occult and the experiences of his own interactions with supernatural forces as he experienced them phenomenologically this has been your Inner Experience thank you for listening and we'll see you later